Well, good morning, everyone. It's nice to see lots of new faces this morning. Uh, lots of us back from the summer, lots of us visiting. I'm also uh, quite a new face. <laughs> um, my name's Ian. For those of you that, that don't know me, my wife, Selena, uh, at the back there. Um, and we have also just moved to Prague. So we're looking forward uh, now to getting to know all of you uh, as the year goes on. Um, we read from Luke 10, and in your bulletin you'll see that the, the title for this message is The One Necessary Thing. I, um, I had actually been planning to speak on a totally different topic, uh, <laughs> But I felt like the Holy Spirit was just urging me back to this passage. Uh, Selena and I, this summer, uh, we've, we've just gotten back from lots and lots of traveling. We were visiting churches that support us. And the last place we visited was Spain, uh, where we were at a, a conference of um, uh, in, an international gathering of churches called, called Battelle, which is our, our home church. And the theme for the conference was this passage sitting at the feet of Jesus. And it really impacted me. And so that's been just kind of uh, uh, developing in my heart since we've gotten back. And it was the simplicity of that message that really impacted me, that the most important thing is to sit at the feet of Jesus. And I think Lori even mentioned that in her prayer. And yet, the simplest things can be the hardest things to grasp and really apply to our lives sometimes. And so what I want to explore together today is, what does it mean to sit at Jesus' feet? Why is it so important for our lives? And how does that actually get worked out in our lives? So, first of all, what does it mean? And I want to start trying to answer what does it mean by firstly looking at something that it doesn't mean. So we read the story, and it's, it's quite a uh, well-known um, and short, memorable story. Mary chose to sit at Jesus' feet, which is what a student in ancient Israel, that's what a student would do sitting at the feet of uh, their rabbi, learning from them. That was the position of a student. Uh, just, just as uh, the Apostle Paul said, he grew up at the feet of Gamaliel. He studied under the rabbi Gamaliel. Well, Mary was sitting at the feet of her rabbi, Jesus. And Jesus said, this was the good portion. She chose the good portion. Whereas Martha, the implication is, uh, chose a not-so-good portion, a lesser portion. So I said one thing that it doesn't mean. One thing that it doesn't mean, one thing that this passage I don't think is intending to tell us is that practical service of the kind Martha was doing is less important than spiritual service of the kind Mary was doing. Uh, that spiritual activities are the ones that really please God and the rest is just a necessary evil that distracts us from all the really important stuff. That's one thing I don't think this is trying to tell us. A lot of people have, um, and it's easy to read this passage and assume that Martha is caught up in all sorts of uh, worldly concerns and anxieties and uh, things that are really meaningless 
Whereas Mary was doing the spiritual things that are really valuable. And in fact, for centuries, that is the interpretation that has often been taken in the church. Uh, and many people still take it today. Starting with Eusebius, who's a church historian in the third century, uh, he designate, he defined two potential ways of life for the Christian. There's the perfect way, which was the life of contemplation, of prayer and devotion. That was reserved for monks and nuns and priests and the clergy. Uh, and so that's the perfect life, the contemplative life. For everybody else, there was the permitted life, the life of activity and work, and that was what everyone else had to do. Effectively, if you've got a perfect way and a permitted way, you create two classes of Christian. You've got the higher and the lower. You've got the, uh, the, the spiritual and the mundane, the, the holy and the worldly, um, the Marys and the Marthas, or you could even say the called and the common. And in fact, uh, this has penetrated Christian thinking for so long that uh, to a lot of people, to answer the call of God is just another way of saying becoming a priest, becoming a pastor, uh, working for the church. But what is a Christian's calling? What is a Christian's calling? And if you're like me, you've maybe dreaded that question. At least, you know, if you've grown up in church or maybe uh, I just think of myself as a teenager, that was the one question that bothered me most. What am I going to do with my life? What's my calling? <laughs> uh, it was something that was really a struggle. And I would say the best book that I've encountered on this question of calling is Oz Guinness's book uh, called The Call, Finding and Fulfilling the Central Purpose of Your Life. I highly recommend it. Um, but he breaks down this idea of calling, and he points out that there's, there's been a distortion over history. I mentioned this elevation of two kinds of Christian, the, 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 the holy and the mundane, uh, the higher and the lower. He calls this spiritual over secular distortion. He calls it the Catholic distortion of calling. And before we get too smug, uh, there's a Protestant distortion, which is the other way. It's the secular above the spiritual, which is probably even worse. But it's a distortion of the meaning of calling. And it's here, we're talking about what does it mean to sit at the feet of Jesus. It's here that we begin to understand what does it mean to sit at the feet of Jesus. Because a calling means nothing without a caller. A calling means nothing without a caller. Jesus is the one who calls. And the calling that goes out to every single Christian is exactly the same. Follow me. That's the call to every single Christian. To become a follower of Jesus, to become his disciple, his student, his apprentice. And you'll hear me probably talking a lot about discipleship because Selena and I have been brought on uh, to ICP staff as discipleship directors. Uh, so I thought it was appropriate to, to talk about this. To be a disciple, though, 
There's all sorts of mixed up ideas of what a disciple is. To be a disciple is not some advanced, higher state of Christianity. It's not the next level that you go to if you're really serious. Discipleship is Christianity 101. It's entry level. It's where we start. Because discipleship begins when you answer Jesus' call, follow me. A disciple is one who follows. There's no Christian who's not a disciple. In fact, that word Christian, uh, it was first used as a derogatory term. The first way that uh, the faith of the apostles was referred to was the way. The people that were following Jesus on this way. Our primary calling, if you're a Christian, your primary calling is to sit at the feet of Jesus, to become his student, to learn from him, to follow him. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's the most basic meaning of what it means to be a disciple. We're called by him to him. And that is the the primary calling of every person that calls himself a Christian. Now, out of that primary calling, which is the same for everybody, there flow an infinite number of individual callings that's different for every Christian. I'll say it again. Everyone's got the same primary calling, but out of that primary calling, there's a second uh, level, which is every person's individual calling to live their life. Uh, we're not called to live Jesus' life. He already lived it. He lived it very well. We're called to live our life as Jesus would live it. And so every person is called in, a, in that secondary way to follow him and to do everything that we do to his glory. It says in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink, basically whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. Everything we think, do, say, live belongs to him. And so whatever it is that we do, we're doing it for him. That's the, uh, that's the intention. And that has uh, huge implications for life. It has particularly huge implications for our work. Um, one implication is, and I'm talking to my teenage self, you, need, you stop worrying about what your calling is. Stop worrying about what God's called you to do because the, truth, the same truth goes out to every Christian. You are called to follow him in whatever you do. The first thing is to follow him. And then go out. The first thing is follow him and then go out and do whatever he's equipped you to do in your particular circumstances, in your situation, your gifts, your abilities, uh, your moment in history, and do it with all of yourself, all of your being for his glory. Os Guinness, in, in that book, he calls this mentality being an entrepreneur of life. In other words, that Jesus has called us to himself, that's our primary calling, but after that, he doesn't prescribe every little decision that we make or what job uh, to do necessarily. 
He wants to, us to take everything that we've been given and invest it wisely for his, his kingdom. Invest it wisely for his glory. So, all of this is to say that this story about Mary and Martha, it's not about good actions versus bad actions, or even blessed actions versus permitted actions. Martha's practical service and Mary's so spiritual service are both good. They're both needed. In fact, Romans 12, 1, when, it, when, when Paul talks about uh, how you should live out your life um, in service to God, he says, make your bodies, make your entire being, everything that makes you who you are, make it a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That is the, is the rational way to respond to what he's done for us. Abraham Kuyper um, put it this way. He said, there's not one square inch of the entire creation over which Jesus Christ does not cry out, that's mine. Everything, every part of our lives is lived out to him. And so it's funny that we have this term, uh, full-time Christian ministry, uh, which typically refers to the Mary stuff, the spiritual stuff. And I understand why, we, why the term exists. Um, but what's funny is in the, the, the original Greek of this passage, the only one doing any ministry is Martha. The word uh, translated as serving, diakonia, that is the word that we translate ministry. So what Martha's doing is also ministry. Uh, because ministry simply means service. It just means service. When we understand our calling, every real Christian should be in full-time ministry. Every Christian is in full-time service of God in everything that we do, no matter what profession, uh, workplace, culture that we're in, everyone is called to serve with their whole self, full-time ministry to God. Um, so the story is not about good actions versus bad actions. It's about orders of goodness. It's about the one good that is the foundation and the fountain of all other goods. The call is to Jesus first and service second. The path, that path of a disciple on the way is about getting him first and being shaped bit by bit into his character. It's about that before it's about doing something for him. It's about getting him, becoming like him before it's about doing something for him. C.S. Lewis said, um, what God cares about is not exactly our actions. What he cares about is that we should be creatures of a certain kind or quality, the kind of creatures he intended us to be, creatures related to himself in a certain way. Becoming a disciple, becoming a student of Jesus is all about the character of Jesus, who Jesus is, the impression that he leaves on the world 
that being shaped into us so that bit by bit we become more like who Jesus is. That bit by bit we leave more and more of Jesus' kind of stamp, his impression on the world. That's the end goal of being a disciple. That every part of us would eventually bear his resemblance. Restoring us to the purpose of our creation. Because Genesis tells us God created us in his image. And that word image is uh, like a little copy of himself to reflect who he is, his character. Becoming a disciple is setting us on the path to restoring the image of God in us that was broken by sin. God will stop at nothing less than making every one of his children, every disciple, he will stop at nothing less than making them into the image of Jesus. That's what Romans 8, 28 and 29 is about. Uh, We know Romans 8, 28, um, many of us, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who were called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. He predestined them to what? To be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The reason God calls us and sets us on the path of discipleship is to transform us into the image of his son. That's the end goal. To become like Jesus. And the only way that that can happen is by sitting at his feet learning from him, walking with him, and slowly becoming like him as we walk with him on the way. So that's a little bit of what it, what it means to sit at Jesus' feet. Now, why is it so important? And, and we've begun to see through what it means why it's so important. Martha's problem in this passage that we've read, Martha's problem was not what she was doing, but that she had the order of her callings mixed up. The problem wasn't the service, it was the distraction. And distraction is a huge problem because it replaces urgent things for the essential thing. Distraction replaces urgent things for what should be the essential thing. And that's part of the essence of what sin is. It's taking good things that God created and using them in such a way that it distracts you from the ultimate thing, which is God himself. And so even good things, we have this kind of neat categorization of, well, these things are good and these things are are bad. These things are holy. These are secular. But actually, even so-called good things, even so-called holy things, actually, everything's holy to God, but... Uh, even so-called good things can get between us and the call of Jesus. Even good things can become a distraction that create a barrier between that call to follow him. And nothing, absolutely nothing, should be allowed to come between us and that call. oh, I've got too much on my plate with my family or my work, and uh, you know, I just don't have time to, to, 
to really dedicate myself to God. I, I, maybe when my life's sorted out, maybe when things quiet down a little bit, maybe then. Or uh, I'd really like to go, but I need to take care of my family. I need to spend time with my family. Those are good things. It's good to work well. It's good to take care of your family. And yet, if they become things that come between you and the call of Jesus, they become a distraction. That's what the people that came to Jesus on the road uh, in, in the chapter before we read, Luke 9, uh, they, said, they said things like, let me go first do this or do that. Let me take care of my, 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 uh, my parents. Uh, let, me, let me go sort out this work issue. Important things, honorable things. But they said, let me first do that, and then I'll follow. But Jesus said, to be a disciple, you have to hate all other things in comparison to answering that call. There is nothing that can compete with that call. Even the one, so that's, that, that's things that can stop you from becoming a disciple, from becoming his student. But even if you are a student uh, and you are someone who've answered his, who's answered his call, a disciple can also be easily distracted on the road by, like Martha, by the many things. It says Martha was distracted with much serving. You could also translate that Martha was distracted with much ministry. Oswald Chambers said, beware of anything that competes with loyalty to Jesus Christ. The greatest competitor of devotion to Jesus is service for him. The one aim of the call of God is the satisfaction of God, not a call to do something for him. It's so easy even being a disciple, it's so easy to get consumed with what you're doing for God that you end up losing touch with God himself. The life of a disciple is following behind Jesus, but yet we get so busy that we end up kind of uh, jumping in front of Jesus, trying to get things done. Jesus, hey, catch up. <laughs> it's the tyranny of the urgent. And I... Uh, I often suffer from the tyranny or suffer under the tyranny of the urgent. And so I only really preach things that are first directed here. This message is really first directed here. The word distracted uh, that Martha was, it literally means being dragged around. And that's exactly what it feels like <laughs> when there's one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, and there's no time to think or, or breathe, let alone pray, let alone just listen to God, spend time with him in his presence, the tyranny of the urgent. And if I'm honest, I mentioned, you know, we just moved here. The past few months for us have felt a little bit like that. One thing to the next, to the next, to the next. Can't stop, can't think, got to do, got to do. And so it almost feels like we've arrived here, and wow, we're finally here. Oh, I feel like i got nothing to give. <laughs> I've got nothing in me. It's all dried up. And the thing is, when we get distracted from the source, what we do is we end up just drawing on our own reserves. And that's why it feels so dry, because I don't know about you, but my reserves are very shallow. When I'm not connected to the wellspring, 
the water dries up very quickly. That's why it feels so dry when you're in that place. And so this is something that really uh, God's been reiterating to me over and over again in the past few weeks, uh, that if there's one thing, I must be connected to him. This sermon was important this morning, but even more important, I must be connected to him. Because without him, these are just words. It's, It's meaningless. Without connection to him, our worship today is just words. We must be connected to him. He is the goal of all our labor, all our labor. When we do all these things that we do in worship to God, the goal is to get him, is to, is to, uh, to get closer to him. And so if we end up ignoring him in order to do all the stuff, we're completely missing the point. We're mistaking the means for the end. And when we serve other people uh, in, in whatever way that we serve, especially when you're, when you're serving someone uh, in, in their, in their uh, spiritual needs, we're bringing them Christ, or ultimately we're not bringing them anything valuable. If I'm giving out of something that I'm not connected to, that's the surest way to burn out. If you're not being filled by the unquenchable flame, then the coals will inevitably grow cold. And so Martha is here. She's working hard. She's giving out. Mary is getting filled up. Martha's troubled. Mary's feasting. Mary was feasting. What are you giving out of? What am I giving out of? And when we're honest with ourselves, we need (laughs) to be drawing out of his resources and not our own. We need to be drawing out of his strength because if we're not drawing on his strength, then all we're giving out of is our strength. And if we're honest, it's really just weakness. And so... What are some of the signs here uh, that we're, we're giving out of ourselves, that we've come into this spiritual tiredness? Well, if you look at what Martha says to Jesus, she says, Lord, don't you care that my sister's left me to work alone? Tell her then to come help me. So what do you see in, the, in, the, in her words and her attitude there? I see at least three things. I see a feeling of being overlooked, a sense of isolation and and loneliness, self-pity, and finally, a a critical attitude. Being overlooked. Lord, don't you care? When I begin to feel like, God, I'm doing all this work for you, and it doesn't seem like you care. You're not, you're not, you're not uh, showing me that you care. No one seems to care. Look how hard I'm working. That is a sign that I've, the work is becoming a barrier between him and me, that my, my two callings have been flipped. They're beginning to be a distraction. What about isolation? Martha says, my sister has left me alone. If I begin to feel that I'm the only one really putting in work for God and everyone else is a slacker and I can't believe they're not getting up and working as hard as I am, 
<laughs> or I'm the only one doing the real work, whatever that might mean to me or to you. It's another sign. The work has, has uh, begun to compete with him for our attention. What about a, a critical attitude? Tell her to come work with me. Tell her to get up and, and, and start working. The attitude which begins to point at other people's faults in their work for God, how much they're slacking, what they really should be doing if they were actually spiritual like me, uh, that's a critical attitude. It's a critical spirit, and it's another sign that that order of um, callings has been reversed. And then we come, lastly, uh, to Jesus' response to Martha, and I think we see two more signs in what Jesus diagnoses in, in her attitude. He says that she's anxious and she's troubled about many things. So anxiety, another sign. This, is, this really hit me while I was preparing uh, because I was really right up to the wire. Uh, I was planning to do something else, and, and the Holy Spirit sent me another way, but I was also nervous and, and all those things. I uh, conspired that time was very short. <laughs> And so I was getting more and more nervous, and I had to stop and ask, God, am I more anxious about getting this task done well in my own uh, way of valuing that or other people's uh, estimation? Am I more worried about that than whether you're pleased with me? Am I worried, more worried about that than the fact that this needs to come out of a, of a solid and vital relationship with you? Am I uh, anxious more about appearances than about my, the substance of my relationship with God? It's so easy to, to appear as if you're giving out of that well. That is work before relationship. And anxiety that, that, that Martha was feeling, that we often feel, that anxiety, that worry, that's not what partnership with Jesus is meant to feel like. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And so if I'm feeling burdened and very heavy laden, maybe I'm trying to do too much of the heavy lifting. The yoke was, was on the two oxes, and so it's a partnership with Jesus. Um, maybe I'm trying to do too much of it if I'm feeling that anxiety. And the last thing, Mary was, uh, Martha was troubled which means she was disturbed in her mind. She lacked peace. She was uneasy. Uh, uh, there was these, this swirl of many things robbing her peace. This isn't also the way it should be. Jesus, when he's at the center, it was also mentioned this morning that we can be still and know that he is God. In the midst of the storm, we can have peace when we look at him. If you just look at the storm and all the millions of things flying around that you need to somehow uh, quell and, and settle down and fix, it is going to be troubling. And yet when you focus on the one who calms the storm, the fo you focus on the one who is completely at peace in the storm because he has control over it, we can have his peace. And, set, and so uh, we have to look not at the many things, but at the one necessary thing. And so, if you're feeling anxious and troubled or uh, 
feeling overlooked or isolated or critical or anxious in your Christian service and your service to God, it might be signs that, like me, you really need to reconnect with him. You need to prioritize your relationship with him before the work. And so we come to the last thing here. Uh, How does this all work out in our lives? I love that Jesus, this is the, the last few weeks before he's heading to the cross. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He has his mission Uh, He he said his his face is set like flint to go finish his mission. And yet, you know, you'd think if that were you, you would go and try and preach to as big a crowd as you possibly could. You would try and, uh, or if you're going to have small gatherings, you would try and get the leaders, the you know, the, the people of influence. And yet Jesus decides to peel off to a little village and spend time with these two, as far as we know, socially insignificant Sisters, because he loves them. This is why we're going we're gonna to be focusing on, on investing in our small groups. It's so important to be part of a small group uh, as part of church because the small group, that's where Jesus loves to come and encounter us. To, he loves to come and, and be in relationship with us as we are in relationship with, with one another. And I love his response to Martha here. Because if you read closely, he's not rebuking her. He's not angry. He's compassionate. He says, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. You only need one thing. And that repetition of the name, that was a a typical Hebrew way of expressing uh, concern, care, love, compassion for a person. When, when David, King David's son Absalom uh, rebelled against him, he cried out, Absalom, Absalom, my son. Jesus cares for our troubled and anxious hearts. The response is not anger. His response is, here, you're struggling. Let me show you a better way. Let me show you a better portion. God uh, is the only necessary thing in life. His response to us is to offer us the one good thing that never comes to an end. God is the only necessary thing. In in philosophy, they speak of uh, necessary and contingent things. We live in a universe of contingent things, things that rely on other things uh, for their existence. God is the only thing, the only being that relies on absolutely nothing else for his, his existence, for his character. God is absolutely independent and free and has need of nothing else. And so if you are able to have him on your side, why would you need anything else? In fact, you don't need in the sense of actual necessity, you don't need anything else if you've got God. He's the only necessary thing. That's why it says in, 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 uh, in, in the Gospels, it says, seek first the kingdom of God and all the other things will be added to you. If you get God, you've got access to all of his resources. And guess what? God owns everything. 
So if God is the only necessary thing, if we get him, everything else becomes secondary. He's the only thing that must be. Now, wouldn't it be worth, if that's true, wouldn't it be worth forgetting everything else if you could get him? If you could have God, why would you waste time on the other things? And yet when you get God, all the other things fall into place. It's about the right order. When you see the treasure in the field, Jesus talks about becoming a disciple as someone who sees a treasure in the field or someone, a a, a pearl uh, seller who finds this pearl of unimaginable value and with joy of what they found, they go and sell everything they have to get that field, to get that pearl. Jesus is saying, Martha, you're trying to fill this this hole in your life, this anxiety with all these finite things when really there's only one infinite thing that will satisfy you. C.S. Lewis said, these things are good images of what we desire, but if we make them the thing itself, they become dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. We don't need, if you have Jesus plus nothing, you have everything. When you have Jesus plus something else, the fact of life is the, the, the plus one always begins to win out. It always, be, it always comes between you. It's that tyranny of the urgent. A million duties and expectations bursting into your life and demanding your attention. But Jesus is not a tyrant. Jesus knocks at the door. Even though he's the only one who actually has the right to demand our full attention. Because he's the only one that can sustain our life. He's the only one that can sustain our full effort without letting us down in the end. And so Jesus' response, if we're anxious and we're troubled, Jesus' response is to woo us with a better offer, with a better food. Mary's worried about uh, preparing the, the, the food for her guests. Jesus says, why don't you get some of this better food? The food that you were made to run on. The fuel that your, uh, the, that your being was designed to run on. What, this is the question for us here, what are you giving out of? All of life is service to God, but what are we giving out of? Unless we're being filled by the unquenchable fire, we will burn out. If we're not with Jesus, we're in our own strength. And so we need to get that eternal, that, renew, that eternally renewable resource in God. And the way to get that is to spend time at Jesus' feet, learning from him. The way we sit at his feet, the way we receive that fuel is through worship. And not, uh, not just uh, singing songs, that's, that's one form of worship, but it's making Jesus the ultimate thing. It's setting him as the object of your desire. Just like a lover says, I must have my beloved, or I just, I feel like I'm going to die. I must have them. That's worship. Would our hearts say, I must have you, Jesus? If I don't have you, Jesus, I feel like I'm going to die. In fact, I will die. <laughs> I need you. 
I must have Jesus. I must become like him because we become what we worship. We spend time with him. We learn what he's like, who he is, what he likes, what he dislikes, what he desires. We do that through reading his his love letter to us. We do it through speaking with him in prayer. We do it through uh, obedience to what he's told us to do. That's how we learn what he's like, and we begin a relationship and a friendship with him. I've been so blessed because God's been so impacting this on my heart. It's been such a blessing this past week as we've come back to, to Prague. We live in uh, Vishirad, and the, the big basilica, the fort, is right behind us. And every day I've made it this, I've said, okay, this is going to be my, and someone, someone can hold me accountable to this now because I've said it publicly. Every day I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go up there and spend time with God. <laughs> it's so simple, and yet you have to make it a priority. You have to make it a discipline. And a discipline starts off unnatural at first, and the more and more you do it, the more and more natural it becomes. Connecting to the source, that's a continual thing. We have to keep coming back to this. It's a continual call away from all other distractions if they get between us and Jesus, the one who's called us. So I'm going to end with this. If you get nothing else, get him. Before anything else, get him. Make time for him. Because he is the only source that can continue filling you to continue giving out. And when you come to him with your trouble and anxiety, he promises to bring us rest. He promises to bring you rest, to help you carry that load as you follow him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for the simplicity of sitting at your feet. Lord, that all we need to do, everything that you've called us to do, the the most important thing is that we would be connected to you, that we would know you. You said that is what it means to have eternal life, to know you. So, Father God, as we, um, as we examine our hearts and we look at all the things that distract us, whether good uh, or, or bad or uh, whatever they are, Lord, that we would let nothing come between us and you, that we would give everything that we have to get you. Thank you, Lord, for this, this offer of a better portion, a more satisfying meal for our souls. And we pray that you would, uh, you would come and change our hearts, that that would become our ultimate desire. And we pray in Jesus' name.